Please turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 3, we will be looking at verses 21 through 38. Luke 3, 21 through verse 28. Please give your full attention to God's word. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semien, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Cainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> it seems strange to us in our Western civilization but in other parts of the world, ancestor worship or ancestor veneration has been and continues to be a major religious worldview, especially in parts of Africa and Asia. It's the idea that when your ancestors die, your parents, your grandparents, great parents, when they die, they either become gods or they become links to the gods. And their ancestors are believed to not only be aware of their daily lives, but also very intimately involved in them. And so the religious rituals and those kinds of religions center around trying to honor your ancestors and also seek favors from them. That seems very strange to a Western culture like ours. It is very different because not only do we not worship our ancestors, 
we actually don't even know much about our ancestors. We're very disconnected from them. 200 years ago, or even 100 years ago, several generations of a family, the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents, if they were still around, they tended to live often in the, in the same household, if not in the same neighborhood or the same community. But with advances in technology, mobility has become so easy. We move so easily. We travel to different parts of the country and different parts of the world to take jobs and establish new lives. And we lose that connection with the generations that have come before us. As we separate geographically, unfortunately, we also tend to separate relationally. And as a result, our culture has become very much more individualistic than it's ever been before. We find our identity in the world around us, in our career, in our relationships, in our hobbies, in our possessions, instead of finding our identity in our family, in our heritage. God is the one who designed the family. It's not a man-made institution. God designed for us to grow and develop in the context of families. And God has always intended the family to be the basic building block of his kingdom. That was true in the Old Testament, but it's also true in the New Testament church. We see this in the genealogies in Scripture. There are a lot of genealogies in Scripture. And I'm sure all of us have wondered at one time or another, why? The Holy Spirit is giving us the Word of God, all the information we know, need to know to live and to believe in this world. Why did, this, did the Holy Spirit give so much space in His Word to genealogies? We find one in the very fifth chapter of the very first book of the Bible. A long genealogy. What's the purpose of it? These are the passages that we skip when we're reading through the Bible in a year. But the plain truth is they were never intended to be light devotional reading. That's not why they're included in Scripture. But it does beg the question, why are they in Scripture? Well, one of the very important purposes of the genealogies is to show us the importance of the family relationship. That it is how God marks history is from the passing of one generation to the next generation. And it is how he builds his kingdom. Luke, as he writes his gospel, he's writing about the life and the ministry and the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he does that, he includes the genealogy of Jesus for us. It's interesting that Matthew also gives us a genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's two places in Scripture that we are given a genealogy of Jesus Christ. One's in the very first chapter, at the very beginning of the gospel according to Matthew. But here, Luke includes the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. He's already given a lot of detail about how Jesus was born and how his life began. And it's at this point, as Jesus is embarking upon his public ministry, that Luke feels he wants, this is the right time to tell us about his family history, his family tree. But before he gets to his family tree, what's interesting is that Luke talks about the, probably the, one of the greatest displays of Jesus' divine family. His divine family, not his earthly, physical family. In verse 23, we notice that Jesus is 30 years old 
when he begins his public ministry of preaching, teaching, healing, and performing miracles. Interesting parallel to that 30 years old. I don't know if Luke intends us to make this connection or not, but it is interesting that the Levites, according to Numbers chapter 4, the Levites began their service as priests in the tabernacle and later the temple at age 30. King David ascended to the throne of Israel at age 30. I don't know entirely the significance of that, but it is interesting. The priests and the king began their ministry, their public ministry, at age 30, at least in David's case, as the king. Jesus' ministry here begins in a very surprising way. He goes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And we saw last week that John the Baptist was sent before Jesus to the people of Israel, to the covenant people of God, to call them to repentance. His whole ministry is about calling people to repentance. There was a revival in the days of John the Baptist because he came preaching the word of God to them and the Holy Spirit brought about an attitude of conviction of sin and repentance. And so people came. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Why does Jesus come to be baptized then? It begs the question. We know from Scripture that Jesus never sinned. Even from the point of conception, there was no sin in Jesus. He never committed a sin in thought, word, and deed. Why would he be baptized? Matthew tells us, gives us more detail about the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John the Baptist. And Matthew tells us that, that, that John the Baptist recognized the inappropriateness of it from his perspective. It's like, Jesus, I shouldn't baptize you. You have no need to repent. You have no need of cleansing. You have no need of forgiveness. You're the one who was to come to deliver us from sin. Why would I baptize you? You should baptize me, is what he said. But Jesus replied, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Kind of a cryptic statement, but what he was saying was, I came to live an obedient life. I added to my divine nature a human nature to live a fully human life, put myself under the law to keep the law perfectly, to identify myself with the people of God to whom I have been sent to redeem. And by identifying with God's people and obeying the law, putting myself under the law, that means keeping all the law. Not only the Ten Commandments and all the applications of it, but also the ceremony, we call the ceremonial laws, the laws that were related to the tabernacle and the priesthood. And, you know, Jesus and his family would have offered up blood sacrifices. Jesus and his family would have attended the Passover. They would have kept all of the dietary laws and the cleansing rituals that were required by the law of Moses. And yet Jesus needed none of that in terms of the purity of his soul. But he did it to fulfill all righteousness to live a completely obedient life, to keep the law of God completely and perfectly, even those laws that didn't really address his sinless nature. But it's interesting that Luke doesn't focus on John or the baptism. He almost kind of passes over it so quickly, you don't even recognize, oh wait, he's talking about John the Baptist, and he's talking about John's baptism, because that's not the point that, that Luke wants us to focus on. He wants us to focus upon what the Holy Spirit does at the baptism, and what the Father says at the baptism. When Jesus was baptized, Luke says, the skies were ripped open. 
And there's a vision of God's glory. And the Holy Spirit descends from heaven to earth in a bodily form like a dove, Luke says. I think he says in a bodily form to say this was subjective. This wasn't a vision only. This is literally in, in some form that looked like a dove. He descended, the Holy Spirit descended to earth. Why a dove? And that's one of those things where somebody asks that question, I don't know. Because we don't have that imagery anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only place that talks about the Holy Spirit using the symbolism of a dove. But we get a little hint, I think, because Jesus later talks about his disciples. He says to his disciples, you need to be innocent as doves. And so doves were a symbol in the mind of Christ. The doves were a symbol of innocence, purity, sinlessness. And so it's appropriate that the dove would descend and rest upon Christ. We also think of a dove in terms of peace and reconciliation and restoration. If you think the only other scriptural allusion to a dove that, that is significant is the one that is after the flood, when Noah releases the dove and the dove does not return, showing that the judgment of God and the flood had been poured out and completed. And so when you compare how the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ at the beginning of his ministry and compare that to how the Holy Spirit descended upon the church on the day of Pentecost, in what form did the Holy Spirit descend on the day of Pentecost? He came as tongues of fire. And I think that might. And again, I'm, I'm speculating here because I can't point to direct scripture, but the contrast between the Holy Spirit descending like a dove in the ministry of Christ and the Holy Spirit descend, de, de, descending like fire at the day of Pentecost upon the church almost speaks to a different, slight, a different focus of their ministry. Christ came to bring reconciliation. Christ came to live a perfect and holy life. Christ came as a gentle, meek Savior. Christ came to voluntarily offer up his life as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to empower him in his human nature to do this ministry, he comes in the form of a dove. And yet when the Holy Spirit comes to empower the church, to take the gospel to the world, he comes in tongues of fire. It's at this point then the Father speaks. From this gaping hole in heaven, whatever that looked like, there's a voice that speaks. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now I want to, before I go any further that, point out something that may not be obvious to you. This passage is a definitive proof for the Trinity. We talked a couple of weeks ago about what the Trinity is. It's something unique to Christian theology, unique to Scripture, unique to the true faith, is that we believe that God is one God, but He exists in three persons. A mystery that we cannot understand, but that Scripture reveals is true. One God in three persons. But always in the history of the church, there's been this pernicious heresy that pops up every once in a while that teaches that what really the scriptures are saying about God is that in the Old Testament, he, he made himself, uh, uh, he revealed himself to people as the Father. And then at the time of the Gospels, he revealed himself as the Son. And he came to earth as the Son. And then... When Christ was ascended to heaven again, 
he comes back to earth as the spirit. And you see what I'm saying here is it's one God in three forms or one God in three modes. It's called modalism. It's one God, three different forms. But what the scriptures truly teach is one God in three persons. And which one is true? Well, this passage will show you in a hurry. You have the Father speaking. You have the Holy Spirit descending upon and resting upon the Son who's being baptized. All three persons of the Trinity are acting at the same time in the same moment. It's a rare glimpse of, the, of all three persons of the Trinity showing themselves in one event. Well, but as, let's get back to the family idea here. This is Jesus' divine family. Here's the father saying, here's my beloved son. There's nothing better than a father looking at his son and saying, this is my beloved son. And the Holy Spirit resting upon him. It's a picture of this divine family that has existed from before the foundation of the world, has existed for, throughout eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other intimately, communicating with each other perfectly, and working together to fulfill His purposes with perfection. You see, the fact that we have a family orientation, and we all have it, it is instinctual. It is written into our very being, into our DNA, into our psyche. We have a strong family orientation to us. And the reason we all have that is because we are made in the image of the triune God. We are made in the image of the triune God. The Trinity is an eternal, loving, cooperative, joyful family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what Luke is showing us in this event is that this divine family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly communicating, perfectly loving, perfectly fellowshipping, and perfectly working out the plan of salvation together. And so having given us that glorious vision of the Trinity, of that great family, then he turns to Jesus' human family and gives us his human family tree. Now, if you know anything about these two genealogies, the two genealogies that are given in Scripture for the family tree of Jesus Christ, if you've ever looked at them very carefully, you know that they're different. Matter of fact, there's a lot of differences. More than half of the names are different between the two genealogies. It's actually hard to compare them because Matthew starts with Abraham. He starts with Abraham because Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. It was Abraham's family that was chosen to be God's family on earth. It was Abraham's family that was chosen by God to represent the kingdom of God on earth. And so Matthew starts with Abraham and he proceeds forward through the generations all the way down to Jesus. And he ends with Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, as you notice here in this passage, starts with Jesus and works backward through all the family generations. All the way back, he goes past Abraham and goes all the way back to Adam. And so Luke's genealogy is longer, significantly longer than Matthew's genealogy. If you compare the names, and well, this is where it gets interesting, if you compare the names 
between Abraham, take Matthew's starting point, and you compare the names between Abraham and King David, the names are almost identical. It's after King David that the names become very, very different. And so we wrestle with why is that? What does that mean? How are we to understand this? Matthew's, if you start with, if you look at King David in Matthew's genealogy, the next generation that he lists is Solomon, King Solomon. But if you look here at Luke's genealogy, the generation that is after King David, the father, his name is Nathan. And so you've got Solomon, a very well-known son of King David, who succeeded him on the throne of Israel, but a much lesser-known son, Nathan, is in the genealogy that Luke gives us. Another key difference is when you get to Jesus, you see, or when you get to the generation before Jesus, you look at Joseph and it says that Joseph's father, in Matthew's genealogy, it says Joseph's father's name was Jacob. But in Luke's genealogy, it says that Joseph's father's name was Heli. Now, what are we to make of this? How do we understand? There's no mistakes in Scripture. So how are we to understand this? Well, the first thing I will tell you is that once you throw a virgin birth into a genealogy, it really throws things off. And I do think that that's the key difficulty here, is that in Jewish genealogies, it always goes through the father's name. But Jesus didn't have a human father. He was the result of a virgin birth. And so by blood, he's only related to Mary and her ancestors. And I think that actually Luke is giving us a clear red flag that that's the difference in his genealogy. Because did you notice, this is in the original Greek, it says that Jesus, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. I think you can easily translate that, as was wrongly assumed to be a son of Joseph. So then I think what you can do to make this all make sense is just take Joseph's name out of there and plug Mary's name in there. And therefore, Heli was not the father of Joseph. Heli was the father of Mary. And then the family line goes all the way back then to King David. And the really neat thing about that is, is that Jesus can claim the throne both ways. Jesus had a, a legal claim to the throne because Joseph was his adoptive father, even though not his biological father, but through his adoptive father, he had a lineage all the way back to King David and the throne of David. But through his biological mother, Mary, he also had a claim on the throne of David. Don't let that bother you. Joseph and Mary were cousins, but they were very distant cousins. So, having cleared that up as much as possible, what does this genealogy teach us? Well, first, the most obvious lesson is that Jesus was fully human. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He was fully God, but he also was fully human. And this genealogy is a testimony to that. Jesus wasn't some kind of Greek or Roman God or some demigod. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't a legend that was made up by men. You read the old Greek myths, legends. They don't include genealogies. <laughs> That would be silly. Jesus was fully human. Secondly, being fully human, he fully identified with us by becoming part of a very broken human family. 
Jesus never sinned himself. But he had a lot of crazy uncles just like we do. He had a lot of embarrassing ancestors that he probably didn't want to talk about either. When my wife and I, we, as we've gotten older, we've gotten a lot more interested in our family genealogies. And thankfully, there's a lot of tools out there to, to go out and study your genealogy. And if you haven't done that, I recommend it. It's, it's an enlightening thing. And it, and it definitely does connect you more to your ancestors, and I think, in a, in a healthy way. But you begin to realize that there are places you'd rather not go. My wife was looking through one. And, and, and the, of course, when you're doing these, these studies online, they'll sometimes suggest somebody. But you don't know if they really fit in your family line or not. And you have to do more research to find out, is this person that they suggested for your family line really part of your family or not? As she started to look into it, she said, this historical record says he was a slave owner, so clearly he wasn't part of my family. I'm like, no, no, Suzanne, you can't do that, because we all have those people in our family lines. You know, we don't have a bias and say, well, I'm, I'm going to disown that person. No, we are a part of a family for good or for bad, and a lot of our family history has a lot of sin in it. Tara is a name in Jesus' family genealogy. Terah was the father of Abraham, and he was a pagan idolater. Abraham, of course, was in Jesus' genealogy, and Abraham was a chronic liar. Jacob was a cheater and a thief. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And yet they were in Jesus' human family line. Who knows what other skeletons were in the family closets of Jesus' family tree. That's why when you go back to that first genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, it lists the names from Adam down through the generations. And after every, every time it says, and so-and-so gave birth to this son, it says then, and he died. So-and-so gave birth to his son, and then he died. So-and-so gave birth to his son, and he died. Every Human beings' family tree is full of sin and full of death. Which brings us to the third thing we learn from Jesus' genealogy, which is that he became one of us so that he could save us. He became one of us so that he could break that unbreakable connection between sin and death that permeates all of our family trees. That's why Luke, I'm convinced that's why Luke goes all the way back to Adam. You know, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people, and that's why he went to Abraham to say, Jesus is in a clear line of succession from Abraham. He wanted to show that Jesus was the one who fulfilled all the promises given to Abraham. But Luke, he's not writing to the Jews primarily. Luke is writing primarily to the Gentiles. And so he goes all the way back to Adam because that's where the, the, the problem started. He says, Adam, in, at the very end of his genealogy, he says, Adam, the son of God, which is interesting because Adam is the only one in Jesus' family tree or your family tree or my family tree. Adam is the only one who didn't have either a father or a mother. That's why he says, Adam, son of God, because Adam was made by a direct act of God, created out of the dust of the earth. And he was created perfectly in the image of God. You see, Adam rebelled. Adam broke God's law. Adam sinned. Adam brought death upon his entire family tree. 
and we were lost and without hope. We were bound for eternal destruction unless God sent a second Adam. One who did not bear the curse of a sinful nature. One who could live a perfect human life and keep all the law of God and then offer that perfect human life up on the cross as a vicarious sacrifice for our sins and bear the wrath of God that our sins deserve. We needed a second Adam to get a restart to the human race. The first Adam sinned and we all died. The second Adam obeyed perfectly and then died in our place so that we can live. What Luke is saying is that Jesus is that seed of the woman that was promised to Adam who would come and undo the curse that God had placed upon the earth, the judgment that our sin had brought upon us. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus became fully human so that he could obey perfectly, so that he could deliver us from the judgment of Adam's sin and our own sins. Well, what does this say to us today then? Who is your family? Who's your family? One thing that this teaches us is that our physical family is important to God. He arranged society from the very beginning to be centered around the family. A faithful father and a faithful mother living in lifelong commitment to one another, committed to discipling, to training, to mentoring children in the ways of the Lord. The family unit is the basic building block of God's kingdom. It's where the next generation gets prepared to go and do likewise, to train, to equip, to evangelize, to disciple. And the church grows primarily through families. I want to be careful saying this because we have a lot of single people in the church. We have a lot of people from very broken families in the church. But that doesn't deny the fact that it is still God's original plan and still his ongoing plan to primarily build the church and to spread the impact of the kingdom of God through godly families. Parents evangelizing and discipling of their children. And that's why... The degree to which we have broken families in the church, it hinders our mission. Because when families aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, when families aren't what they're supposed to be, it makes the mission of the church very hard. And it is true that not all of our children come to faith. I know that all too well. But that does not take away from that's what's intended to be. And it is true that most of the people come into the kingdom of God through the witness of their family. I believe in evangelizing the world. But the primary form of evangelism, evangelism is to our covenant children. And I know that that's God's plan, and I know that's how God has done it, 
Because study after study has shown, they'll go out and ask people, what age were you when you came to give your life to Jesus Christ? And every study comes back saying, sometime before age 18 is when most people give their life to Christ. Praise God that the grace of God can reach the 35-year-old and the 45-year-old and the 85-year-old. But most people are going to come to Christ before they leave the home and the Christian household. That's the importance of the family. That's why we need to get back into the Word of God to shore up and repair and restore the family because it is the basic building block of the kingdom of God. But having said that, our forever family is spiritual, not physical. Our forever family is spiritual, not physical. It is interesting that there are no genealogies in Scripture after Luke chapter 3. This is the last one. When Jesus baptized the church with the Holy Spirit, as he promised he would do, and as John the Baptist promised he would do, when he did that on the day of Pentecost, the family of God became a spiritual family. Not a family connected by blood and DNA. Jesus is our older brother. God is our father, and we are brothers and sisters, children of God by faith in Christ alone. And that is, honestly, the great hope I have to offer to the single person, to the person from a broken family, to the person who's been abused by your family, to the person who's been abandoned by your family. It's the promise of Scripture, according to Psalm 68, 6, is this, God settles the solitary in a home. Actually, like the way the other translations put it, God places the lonely in a family. Nobody has to be without this ultra-important entity of the family because the church is the family of God by grace through Christ. Paul, in Romans 9, he wrestles with, in the beginning of chapter 9, he wrestles with the fact that so many of the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people of his day, so many of the descendants of Abraham had been waiting for the Messiah to come, but when he showed up, they rejected him. And Paul wrestles with that. How can that be true? And what truth does he come to realize? Not all Israel is Israel. Not all that were physically descended from Abraham, were part of God's true spiritual family. Isaac believed, he says in Romans 9. Ishmael didn't. They were both sons of Abraham. Jacob believed, but Esau didn't. And they were both sons of Isaac. There's always been that distinction. We still have it between the visible church and the invisible church. But the true family of God is a spiritual entity. Those who have been bought with the blood of Christ, who've been washed with the blood of Christ, those who are brothers and sisters by faith, we share a unity by faith in Christ that goes far beyond and far deeper than the unity of a physical family. And so Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you belong to Christ by faith, you are a child of Abraham, which means you are a child of the covenant promise, which means you are a child of God. 
and that is your eternal family. Our genealogy is actually a continuation of the, the genealogy of faith that the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 11. Faithful Abel, faithful Enoch, faithful Noah, faithful Abraham, faithful Moses, faithful Gideon, faithful Samuel, faithful David. That's our genealogy. Those are our spiritual forefathers. Those of us who live by faith in the promises of God, the covenant of God, we are his covenant community, but we are his family. And that's the beautiful thing is it's not just, I mean, we are brothers and sisters with the true church militant, the church militant, which is still out there battling in the world, in this fallen world. All who are truly by faith in Jesus Christ, part of the family of God, they're our brothers and sisters. And we are bound to them with a deep bond through the blood of Christ. But we are also bound together with the church triumphant. We don't worship our spiritual ancestors, but we haven't lost them either. They are waiting for us. And we're going to spend eternity with the family of God that is in heaven waiting for this all to come to conclusion. The church is your real spiritual family. Does your commitment to it reflect that? I had somebody after the first service come up to me and say, you know, if I were picking a family, I would not pick my church. And I said, you're right, I wouldn't either. Because in my sinfulness, I would want to go pick a bunch of people who look just like me and think just like me and do all the same stuff I do and people that I'm comfortable to live around. But I didn't pick my family. God picked my family. And some of you are difficult to get along with. And some of you find me difficult to get along with. But if you're in Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister. And just like a physical family, that commitment goes to death. It goes even much farther than beyond death in the church. We are brothers and sisters, thanks to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us in that dark place of being alone under your judgment, cut off from you and cut off from everyone else to one degree or another. Lord, you came to us. You opened our eyes. You changed our hearts. You drew us to Christ our older brother. And Lord, you showed us what he did for us at the cross. And as we understood it, you changed our hearts so that we would believe. And by believing, we become children of God. Lord, thank you for this spiritual family, the local expression of it here at Oakwood, but the spiritual family that is everywhere where Christ is truly preached and where people live under his lordship. Thank you, Lord, that this family will be with us for eternity. Lord, give us patience with one another. But Lord, use us to build the kingdom by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.